Hello, my name is Corrie, and welcome to a supplemental episode of the Mongol Empire podcast. Whilst I was writing the update for episode 3.8 over at mongolempirepodcast.com, I had the great idea of providing mini-biographies of the 14 men identified by Cleves as partaking in the Balduna Covenant. Of course though, these little projects always expand and end up being a lot bigger than anticipated, so I hadn't finished it when the episode was released. I had thought just to do this as an article, but you know what? This is a podcast, so why not do a mini-episode? So I've compiled these biographies using a few sources. Obviously, Cleve's translation of the relevant parts of the Wan Shi features quite heavily. I've also used Rashid al-Din's Jami al-Tarawik and The Secret History of the Mongols. Secondary sources include Rachnevsky's Genghis Khan and Paul Boyle's article on Chin Kai. The transcript of this episode, along with the sources, uh, can be found over on mongolempirepodcast.com. These biographies are not going to be the most comprehensive, as there are many sources I cannot access due to language and availability issues. And also, many of the men have very little information written about them. I've also had to consider how much of the main narrative I wanted to bring into this. And as I didn't want to spoil too much of it, some of the men will have quite a bit of information omitted. It's really going to depend on how likely we are to come across the person again in the future. One final thing to note about these biographies is that they all end around 1227 and the death of Chinggis Khan. I figured it wasn't relevant to have anything too much further at this point. First, let's remind ourselves of the 14 men who were at Baljuna. The Mongol people were represented by Temujin, Kassar, Jurchidai, and Achalug. There were three Karayid tribesmen, Hassan Na, Kaidu, and Chinkai. A Suldu's tribesman, Tagai Badur. Sorgan Noyan was possibly from a clan called the Chetuai. Salgur was a Merkit. We have Botu Butu, the Ikiris. There were two Ketan brothers, Yellow Ahai and Yellow Tuha. And there was a Muslim named Jabba Koje. We'll start with the leader, because I don't really feel we have too much need to recount his life in any real detail. If you want to find out more about Temujin, uh, go and listen to the other episodes of the Mongol Empire podcast. As we've seen, Temujin was the son of Yesugai and Hogalun, brother to Kassar, Kachigan, Temuj and Temulun, and half-brother to Belgritai and Bekta. He overcame adversity in his youth to establish himself as one of the strongest leaders on the steppe, using the protection of the Karayid Togril Onkan to grow his reputation, tribe and family. And family is something I have not really looked at in any great detail. In the main narrative, we are at 1203, at which point he has a large number of sons, daughters and wives. But I've only really acknowledged that Joshi and Ogodai exist. The subject of another supplemental episode is likely to be the makeup of Chinggis Khan's household, his family members, etc. Because they are very important to the growth of the Mongol Empire. At the end of the day though, there are many things I still want to look at, and I only have limited amount of time to research and write, so we'll see what happens. The next five men have very little written about them, other than what is translated by Cleves. For Temujin to have honoured their loyalty to him at Baljuna suggests that all five held important positions in his camp, possibly as members of his bodyguard, or Keshigtan. According to Buell, the role of the Keshigtan was multifaceted. 
In addition to protecting the Khan, they maintained his household, carrying out jobs which included preparing his weapons, ensuring the Emperor had plenty of food and drink, looking after tents and supplies, and record-keeping. The Kashyyyktan also acted as advisors, able to directly impact government policy. Having a family member placed within the bodyguard was both an honour and a threat. It was a method of control to deter clans from rebellion. The first of our five Kashyyyktan is Achilug the Mongol. Beyond his participation in the Baljuna Covenant, the Wanshi states that he took part in the invasion of northern China. Next up, we have Hassan Na, the Karaid. The Wanshi tells us only that he proved his loyalty and ability in the battle against Ong Khan, and was invited to drink the waters of Baljuna. Kaidu was another Karaid, and again the information about him comes from the Wanshi biography, this time of his son, Suga. It states that Kaidu was of the Karaid clan, Suga was his son, and his wife was a descendant of the Chinese Tang dynasty. The next man is perhaps the more surprising member of the Balduna Covenant. The biography of Sauga the Merkid states that he also took part in the Mongol conquest of the Jin, but gives little other information. But it's the fact that we find a member of the Merkit tribe serving Temujin in 1203 which is a little bit surprising. If we remember, the tribe had been badly beaten twice very recently, and whilst they were still operating autonomously, the Merkit were nowhere near the threat they had once been. The makeup of Temujin's tribe did allow for individuals to join, so it may be that Salga had realised that fighting for the Merkit leader Togtogebeki was no longer in his best interests. That he was so close to the Mongol leader is perhaps an example of the intimidating element of serving in the bodyguard. Salga had to prove that he was not an agent of the Merkit and gain the trust of the Khan, which he must have achieved at Kalakaljid Sands. So the last of the five Kashyyyktan is Sorgan Noyan. Cleves reconstructed his clan name to be Chetuai. But that isn't certain, and there doesn't appear to be any other sources that mention him. So we'll move on now to the men who do have a little bit more written about them. And we'll begin with Tagai Badur, or Tagai Batur. Tagai the Valiant. Tagai was a Suldus tribesman who had joined Temujin at some point prior to the fight against Onkarn. He must have been a warrior of some repute. In addition to being a celebrated Baljunatu, Tagai's name is recorded by the secret history as being one of the men who were elevated to the position of Mingan Unnoyan, or Commander of a Thousand Men, in the Kirultai of 1206. Whilst Tagai's history appears to fizzle out at this point, his participation at Baljuna is recorded in the Wanshi biography of his grandson, Atakai, showing that his family continued to be held in high regard. Botu Butu was a man who did receive a little more coverage in episode 3.8 of the Mongol Empire podcast, but it turns out the information I gave was not quite right. I stated that Rashid al-Din wrote that Botu Butu was a brother or Temujin's mother Hogalun, but this isn't correct, and if I'd read the footnotes a little closer, I'd have realised this. So, who was Botu Butu, or Butu Gurugan? Well, it seems that he was the leader of the Akira's clan, one of the loose confederation of groups who made up the Ungarad tribe. Around the same time that trouble was brewing between Togril and Temujin, the Akira's clan came under attack from another Ungarad clan, the Karolas. The Karolas routed the Akiris, who then joined with Temujin at Baljuna. Botu Butu appears to have been held in high regard by Temujin, 
as Rashid al-Din tells us he married the Mongol Khan's eldest daughter, Fujin Beki. And this time, the information is backed up by the secret history, as it tells us that the name Gurugan was given to men who had married one of Temujin's daughters. Botu Butu is said to have brought about 2,000 Akiris to Temujin's army, and like Tagai Badur, the secret history names him as one of the men promoted to Minganu Noyan in Chinggis Khan's new-look Mongol army. Rashid al-Din also states that Botu Butu served as Temujin's attendant. So with that controversy resolved, the next man we will look at is someone who has faded in and out of the main narrative, right from the beginning. Temujin's brother Kassa was the second son of Yesugai and Hogalan. According to Rashid al-Din, Jockey was his birth name, but he got the additional name of Kassa, which means wild beast, because he was big, powerful and mighty. You will see sources and accounts referring to him as Jockey Kassa, which gets a little confusing when Temujin's first son was named Jockey, which is why I continue to refer to him as Kassa. On a separate note, was Jockey the son named after Jockey the brother? I doubt we'll find an answer for that one, but it's an interesting thought. Kassa was generally supportive of Chinggis Khan's actions throughout his life, and barring a few occasions, Temujin retained trust in his brother. Kassar played an instrumental role in several key points in Temujin's rise to Khan, the murder of Bekta being one. He did miss out on the Battle of Kalakaljid Sands, as his family were being held captive by Onkan. Depending on which source you read, Kassar either escaped from Onkan's camp, abandoning his family, or he avoided capture in the first place, and wandered around the steppe living off Carrion until he joined up with Temujin at Baljuna. As we shall see in the next full episode... Kassar's decision to abandon his family to Togril provided an opportunity for the Mongol Khan to strike back against his adopted father. Kassar's family always retain a place of honour in Mongol society, but Kassar himself fades in and out of the narrative. I've decided to provide fairly limited information about Kassar at this time, as although he seems to swing from at one moment being a key figure in Temujin's government, to next playing a more secondary role, his life is still very much tied up with the events of the main narrative. So you'll just have to wait to find out what contributions Kassar makes to the founding of the Mongol Empire. Moving on then, we have the other Mongol leader, Jurchidai. Jurchidai, or Kahatai Noyen, as Rashid al-Din calls him, was another leader who brought a large body of men to support Temujin. As we have already seen, he was the leader of the Mongol Uruguid clan, and probably transferred his allegiance from Jamuga to Temujin on the latter's return from the frontier zone in 1196, taking part in the battle against the Tatar. Did the fact that Temujin was now the de facto leader of Togru's Koreids with Jurchen support help this decision? Possibly. But Jurchidai remained as one of Temujin's most loyal commanders, answering his call for support at Kalakaljid Sands and leading the charge against the Koreid Mongol alliance. Additionally, Rashid al-Din reports that Jurchidai was the only leader of the Urugud who remained loyal to Temujin throughout, with other Urugud leaders deciding to join the Taijigud. Now, this could be Rashid al-Din confusing events again, but after the Taijigud were completely defeated by Temujin, the Mongol leader ordered the rebellious Urugud clans to be reduced to slavery, and Jurchidai did not object to it because he agreed that they deserved their punishment. Despite naming Jurchidai as a great and important commander, the only story Rashid al-Din recounts about him relates to a time Temujin suffered a nightmare. 
Apparently, Jurchadai was on night guard duty outside the Khan's tent when Temujin came stumbling out somewhat frantically. The nightmare had been so bad that Temujin felt that the only way to save himself from it was to give away one of his wives to the man who was guarding his tent, which happened to be a bemused Jurchadai. In the Kiraltai of 1206, Jurchadai was also named one of the Mingan Unoyan. So now we come on to the non-step participants of the Baljuna Covenant, and we'll start with the Kitan brothers Yellow Ahai and Yellow Tuur. The term Yellow identifies these two men to be members of the old Kitan imperial clan, and both were officials in Huan Shao in Inner Mongolia. According to his Wan Shi biography, Yellow Ahai was originally sent to the steppe by the Jin to serve as an ambassador to Onkan. During his service, he identified Temujin as being a man of extraordinary talent, and offered to transfer his service from the Jin to the Mongol leader. As a way to guarantee his loyalty, Ahai offered to give his younger brother, Tuhua, to the Khan as a hostage. Agreeing to this term, Temujin allowed Ahai to return to his home in China, and the following year, he returned to the Mongols bringing with him Tuhua. Ahai was granted a position in the heart of Temujin's retinue to provide consultations on strategy and battle order, whilst Tuhua was placed in the Khan's bodyguard. Ahai was a noted horse rider and archer, probably a polyglot, and was probably quite a bit older than Temujin, having been born around 1150. During the conquest of the Jin, both brothers served under the Zhebe in the vanguard of the Mongol army. Ahai unsuccessfully attempted to apply some control over the violence meted out on the conquered population. Later on, the administrative experience of the brothers became invaluable, and Chinggis Khan gave Ahai permission to set up a basic local government in the conquered territory. Ahai went on to take part in the Western Campaign, and was appointed Darugachi, or an overseer, of Samarkand, a position that was inherited by his son. Ahai died in 1225. Tu Hua remained in China throughout this as a military organiser. Our next participant is Jabba or Jaffa Koji, who was a Muslim and a Sayyid, someone who claimed descent from Muhammad. His origins are unknown, but he was probably a merchant. Much like the Khitan brothers, it seems likely that Jabba Koji held a more administrative role within Temujin's council. But the Wan Shi states that he was a highly proficient hunter, and used a bow to bring down a horse which was used to feed Temujin's followers after the battle at Kalakaljid Sands. He was appointed as the Mongol envoy to the Jin dynasty, and was instrumental for speeding up its defeat. His knowledge of northern China allowed the Mongol army to bypass potentially difficult obstacles, such as fortresses, to gain a combat advantage. He served as the Mongol negotiator during the 1214 peace talks. When war recommenced in 1215, Jabba Koje was instrumental in the capitulation of the Jin capital, Chengdu. He received a large part of the city as a reward for his service. Later, he was given the task of organising local government in the region surrounding Chengdu, as the Mongol administration looked to make its sedentary holdings profitable. Apparently, Jabba Koje lived to 117 years old, dying in 1227. So this brings us to the last man in the Baljuna Covenant. Fortunately, he has had quite an extensive biography written about him by Paul Buell, which can be found in the book 
in the service of the Khan, eminent personalities of the early Mongol Wan period, edited by Igor Dirachvilts. Buell's article, Chinkai, Architect of the Mongol Empire, is a shortened version of this chapter, and it provides the foundation of this biography. Described by both the Wan Shi and me in episode 3.8 as being a Koreid, Chinkai's origin seems to be a little uncertain, as other sources describe him as an Ongut, a Muslim from Turkestan, or a Uyghur, and he does not appear in the secret history at all. His absence from that source may suggest a non-steppe origin, and much like Jabba Koje, it seems likely that prior to joining the Mongols, he was a trader. Wherever he was from, Chinkai was highly educated, and we know that he could fluently speak the Turkish and Mongol dialects and the Chinese language. He could also read Chinese and the Uyghur script. His career as a Mongol leader probably started prior to 1203 in Temujin's bodyguard in a dual administrative and martial capacity. At the Kuriltai of 1206, he was given his own force of men and then moved on to holding two offices in the Khan's government. The first kept him close to Chinggis as a bodyguard and household administrator. The second was an appointment within the larger imperial government. These roles were often intertwined. Typically, men who formed the bodyguard could end up in important government positions because of their natural talent and from having the trust of the emperor. In 1212, Chinkai was made a Cherby, or Chamberlain. At the same time, he was given the position of Jaguchi, an arbitrator. He was involved in resolving legal disputes alongside Chinggis's senior Jaguchi, Shigi Kutuku. At some point prior to 1221, he was ordered to establish a colony of artisans and captives in Western Mongolia, which came to be known as Chinkai Balayasum, or the Granary of Chinkai. He also arranged for the Taoist monk Chang Chung to meet with Chinggis Khan in Afghanistan, recording the event for posterity. On the military front, it seems likely that he had an important role in the conquest of northern China, in both the planning and fighting parts. He helped to bring about the capitulation of the Jin capital Chengdu, and as a reward, he was allowed to fire off four arrows in four directions and claim all the booty within, similar to the reward received by Jabba Koji. Chinkai's legacy appears to be more on the administrative side of government. He was one of the men who recognised the need to wean the government away from the practice of violently exploiting its conquered subjects, instead working to turn the land into profitable parts of the empire. By 1225, his responsibilities had grown beyond the Khan's household, and he had been moved into the wider imperial administration, where he worked under the empire's chief Jaguchi, Belgutai. He had control of the representatives of the families who had married into Chinggis Khan's family, which would probably have included Botu Butu. These representatives acted much like agents, trying to gain positions of influence for their clients. Chinkai served in the administration of all the emperors until the reign of Monke in 1252, when he was executed for supporting the rival house of Ogodai. So those were the 14 Belgianatu, the men whose families would be honoured for all time because they had shared the hardship endured by Temujin. I hope you've enjoyed this slightly different episode, and as I said in the beginning, I will probably do a few more supplemental episodes. Just a reminder that all the sources used in this episode and a transcript of the salient points can be found over on mongolempirepodcast.com. Coming up, you will have episode 3.9 at the end of the month as normal. 
and I've got episodes about Cecia and the preparation for the main body of work post-1206 to get on with. As always, if you have a burning desire to contact the podcast, you can do so by emailing me at cory, that's C-O-R-E-Y, at mongolempirepodcast.com, or you can even attempt to get hold of me on Twitter at mongolempirepod. Otherwise, until next time, take care and thanks for listening.